Amen. Thank you, Seth. Uh, Redskins, you guys are dismissed. Ushers, you guys can go ahead and come forward for the offering. If you're new in these parts, my name is Mason. I'm the lead pastor here at Res, and you come at a really good time. Um, we are uh, three weeks away, What's that? September 9th, whatever, whenever that comes around. Uh, we're a few weeks away from having our first service, first worship service like this one, in uh, our new facility, the Capitol Theater. And um, it's somewhat of a unique situation because I didn't want to uh, leave this space empty, and I didn't want this to um, simply become a space where we meet needs without the gospel being central. And we had a particularly gifted guy on our team who is a member of this community, and so we developed some time ago a model for um, moving resurrection downtown and then planting a church here uh, that we're going to call Risen City Church. And so on September 9th, that morning, we're having our first worship service at the theater, and that evening we're having sort of an interest gathering meeting. Um, a service of sorts, but it won't look like this uh, here at this facility as well, to begin inviting the community in uh, to help start a church. There's a big distinction that we're going to make next week, and I'll make a little bit at the end of the sermon today. We're not starting something that we're inviting the community to. We're inviting the community to start something. It sounds small and almost like a semantics type of thing, but we're not like, like we do with resurrection, right? With resurrection, we were already a thing, came here, hey, come here. What our goal is with Risen City Church is to say, hey, there's nothing, come create this with us. Instead of saying, hey, here's the painting, do you like it, will you look at it with us? It's pick up a brush and let's start painting together. So that's sort of what we're doing. Next week, I'm gonna talk a lot more. Uh, next week will be practical. I'll have a whiteboard up here and uh, we'll be drawing through um, sort of the ins and outs of what the next several weeks, months, and, and perhaps years will look like for our church. So we're in a series right now called Multiply, where we are laying a biblical and theological foundation for our move to the theater, for our planting Risen City Church, and for our planting of multiple um, parishes eventually throughout West Virginia. Two weeks ago, we saw that gospel ministry is apostolic. And what we mean by that isn't sort of this um, apostolic in a denominational sense by any stretch. What we mean by that is that the apostles' faith has been passed down to us, and not only has the faith itself been passed down to us, but what it looks like when we embody that faith has been passed down to us as well. The apostles had a blueprint for their ministry model. Their blueprint was Jesus. And so as we follow Christ, right, we are following Paul and we're following those who followed him as well. We don't exist in a vacuum. Last week, we saw that gospel ministry is inherently incarnational. The missionary posture is always, 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 always that of a servant. We know how to go to others by considering how Jesus came to us. Last week's sermon was the most convicting for me to prepare, the most convicting for me to preach, because I think the incarnation is the most convicting of all doctrines. I mean, God has emptied himself and come to earth and lived the life we lived, and he took the kind of job that we would take, and he walked the kind of roads that we walked. He ate the food that we ate. He lived as a human. And not only that, he did that for 30 years in complete obscurity. His birth wasn't celebrated. His life wasn't celebrated. And even when his ministry began, he faced much hardship. All the while, he was himself God. 
This week, we're going to start in an unlikely place for a consideration of gospel multiplication. Genesis 1. I'm not going to postulate over the age of the earth. (laughs) I'm not going to postulate over the scientific how and what of creation. I think if we do those things all of the time, we miss the very point of the scriptures. But most importantly, we're not going to learn facts for the sake of learning facts. I'm super thankful for Sunday school in my life and for learning things through a sermon sort of didactic setting like this one. But one of the dangers is we can learn the Bible just for the sake of knowing facts from the Bible, all the while missing the redemptive storyline and the redeemer of the Bible. So we're not going to debate facts, things like that. We will discover which came first, the chicken or the egg. We'll get there, so hang on tight. In the middle of this series, we're going to take a step back this morning and consider how the grand narrative of Scripture informs how we should think about God multiplying the church throughout time and space. How does the grand narrative of Scripture, beginning in Genesis, ending in Revelation, in our context, continuing on to today in one sense, God's story is not over, how does this grand narrative inform the way that we live? How does this grand narrative inform the way we come to church on a Sunday morning? How does this grand narrative inform the way that we go to discipleship group on a Wednesday, a Tuesday, a Thursday night, or if you're like us, a Saturday morning? By Saturday morning, everyone knows Saturday mornings start around 10 a.m., and so there's nothing before that, I don't think. We'll see where this whole story of God began. We'll see that God intended the whole world would experience his glory as it's filled with his goodness. We'll see that life multiplies. If you're taking notes, we'll see that life multiplies in God's plan for creation. It's God's idea, and God does the work. But even a quick glance around us shows us that more than just life is multiplying around us, that sin seems to be multiplying around us. Something happened, and sin happened. And now when we experience the world, we experience sort of a mixed bag, right? We experience the good, the bad, the ugly. We feel the, the, the sort of joy of love and affirmation, but we feel the sting of betrayal. We know what it's like to gain, and we know what it's like to lose. We know what it's like to have a lot. We know what it's like to have a little. We know what it's like to struggle and suffer as well as to rejoice and be happy. Sin has seemed to thwart God's plan for creation. But at the heart of Christianity is the glorious news that this is not true. This morning, I'm going to redefine the expectations of how the church grows by focusing on the Christian life as a recapturing of God's plan for creation. If you're taking notes, that's really important. I want to redefine the expectations of how the church grows by focusing on the Christian life as a recapturing of God's plan for creation. I think we'll take fresh eyes to Genesis 1 this morning, and I think that you'll see some things in the text that perhaps you have not seen before. I want to move the language of multiplication, like starting new churches, seeing new believers, starting new discipleship groups, all those sorts of things. I want to move that conversation from the boardroom to the lunchroom, so to speak. I want everyday people like me and like you to know that the Spirit of God in them is more than enough to accomplish the will of God through them. The Spirit of God in them is more than enough to accomplish the will of God through them. We need to find a way that our church growth and church planting models line up with the efforts and toil of everyday people. Right now, those exist in separate spheres. We need to bring them 
together. Look with me in Genesis chapter 1. We're going to go all the way through Revelation 21 this morning, so buckle up. Steph didn't read the whole thing. I didn't ask him to. I asked him to read the last little bit because I didn't want to read it all and read it all again. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, if you're like me, or, uh, that's a somewhat of confession, if you start your Bible reading plan every year in January, then many of you are very familiar with Genesis 1, right? This is, we, we've got this memorized as a church. Every January we read this text. And so, uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I heard a story one time about a uh, Jewish fellow who was going to a rabbinical school to be a rabbi, and they pulled out their, you know, their Old Testament, their, their Tanakh, and they start reading it, and the professor says, all right, someone start you know, reciting Genesis 1. They had to recite the whole thing, which we can all do. Um, Genesis 1, he started reciting, in the beginning, God, and the professor goes, stop, stop, stop. He said, start again, start again. It's like, in the beginning, God, stop, 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 start again. In the beginning, God, stop. And the guy's like, okay, I know I didn't mess this up. You know, like, what is going on? And the professor said, if anyone doesn't believe that, then you just need to leave the class because nothing else is going to matter. Right, these words, in the beginning, God, are the foundation on which the whole Bible sits because it's assuming a God who doesn't exist in words that we can simply just define. The writer doesn't start defining God. He just says, here's God, right? He doesn't start telling us what that God is like. He starts showing us what that God has done. And there is this God who is not contingent on any other reality. Before anything was, he simply existed. He is our starting point for understanding everything. In a world where everything seems to be shifting and changing, God is a tether for our minds and a tether for our hearts. This isn't a philosophical reality in a world with real hurt and real pain and real confusion. God is an anchor that keeps us from becoming completely unhitched. And this God, this God who existed before there was anything, has chosen to create. And the rest of chapter 1 is a 30,000-foot view of how that God has chosen to create. Genesis 2, then, if Genesis 1 is this 30,000-foot view, Genesis 2 zooms us down to the ground level and sort of looks more intimately at how God created man. But we're going to look at this 30,000-foot view in Genesis 1 this morning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters." And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was, everyone say, good. God saw that the light was good. As we look through Genesis 1, we're going to see three themes. The first theme is creation is good. Creation is good. The second theme is that God intended the multiplication of that creation. God intended the multiplication of that creation. And third, man, in general terms, so male and female, man was created to cultivate and oversee that multiplication as God's vice regent, his under shepherd, whatever you would like to say. Three themes, creation's good. God intended for the multiplication of that goodness. And finally, humanity was meant to sort of rule with God over that, was created to cultivate that goodness and oversee the proliferation of that goodness. 
Those three themes are important. Let's jump into them. First, creation is good. Verse 4, God saw that the light was good. God has created light, and he saw that it was good. Verse 10, when we get to verse 9, the text says, And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was Good. So we've got light, and God saw that it was good. Now we've got earth, and we've got seas, and God sees that both are, is, are very good. In verse 12, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So we've got light, we've got earth, we've got sea, and now the earth begins sprouting plants and trees, and they are good except broccoli. And then we get to verse, just kidding, it's good too before sin entered the thing. Verse 18, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good. What's to rule over the day and the night? Two great lights, right? So this sort of sun and moon that God creates to rule over the day and the night. So we've got light, we've got sun, we've got moon, we've got earth, we've got sea, we've got vegetation growing on the land. Verse 21, so God created the sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind and God saw that it was Good, we've got dolphins and whales and seahorses and eels and robins and eagles and blue jays, and they are all very good. Verse 25, and God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kind and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Cows and horses and elephants and dogs and cats and tigers and bears and bison, God has created and he sees that they are all good except for cats. And then we see our second theme is that God intends multiplication. God intends multiplication. Look at in verse 11. And this is profound to me. Maybe not to you. It, that's okay. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed. So from the very beginning of creation, God created these plants, and we'll see animals as well in a second. He creates them, and he creates them good. And they're perfect as his creation, and there's nothing wrong with them. But God creates them in such a way that there will be more of them. God creates them in such a way that they'll grow across the land and across the sky and across the sea without any death whatsoever. God's created these things to grow and to multiply across the world. God could have just made a tree that's a tree forever. Right? It could have been like you know, there's a, he makes a tree and he makes all this stuff and it's just there and it's like a stage. You know, you ever go to a stage play and, you know, there's just like a setup back there and it's a low budget play so it never changes. So the whole play is happening in front of like a, a couch and a, something, you know, it's like that stage is kind of fixed and that's how it's going to be. God could have done that, right? He could have said, here's a tree. It's going to be here for 10 billion years. Here's a, a dog. He's going to live forever. Unfortunately, my little bad dog will probably live forever. But here's all these sort of things and they're going to be here forever. And they're going to be good. But God didn't do that. He chose to create in such a way that his creation would continue to grow and continue to multiply across the world. He didn't give them a strategy on how to do this. He gave them life, and life ultimately will multiply when life is lived to the fullest. God is creating a world to fill it with his good creation, but there is one thing left to create. Verse 26, 
Then God said, let us, why, I wonder why that's plural, right? Well, this is Trinitarian language from the very beginning of the Bible. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. I love verse 31. Verse 31 is sort of the crescendo at the end of the text. And God saw everything that he made and behold, it was, say, very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Look at this picture in Genesis 1. God creates everything. Not anything was created that is created that he didn't create. He creates the perfect setting, a universe, particularly one planet that is perfectly situated to host life, a planet with water and land and oxygen that's in just the right distance from the great sun he's created to sustain life without crushing that life. And on this planet, he created a manner of living things to multiply and fill the earth. And in each one of those living things as it multiplied across the world, every creature was meant to know that our God is great. Our God is brilliant, our God is perfect, and our God is strong. And then finally he created man, the crown jewel of his creation, to rule over the earth, to reflect his character in this beautiful beautiful theater of the divine. Man was to cultivate the ground, to work, to be satisfied, to love and to be loved, to know God and reflect God in this theater of his glory. Here we see the essence of God's plan for creation, that the whole world would experience his greatness through the goodness of his creation. Imagine what life would have been like on this planet if this would have happened, right? Imagine what it would be like this morning if this were the case. We can't even wrap our brains around it. But we know if we keep reading in our January Bible reading plan, that it only takes a couple of days until we get to Genesis 3. And in Genesis 3, something happens. Adam and Eve didn't trust God. Why didn't they trust God? Has God done something to deserve this? Absolutely not. But there's one tree in the garden, perhaps one tree to remind them that they're not God. And if they were to eat from that one tree, they would say, God, it's cool that you made us in your image and all, right? It's cool that you've blessed us in a way that you haven't blessed any other thing. It's cool that we get to name and rule over everything that lives. But that's not enough for us. Not enough for us. Because Adam and Eve would do the one thing they weren't supposed to do. They were to take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and not just the knowledge of good and evil, but implied in that is that by taking the fruit from that tree, they're claiming authority to say what is good and evil. They weren't content with being God's creature. They wanted to be 
God. Taking food from that tree would be a brazen overstep. It would be a profession that this God who created all these things for this perfect purpose didn't really know what he was doing. Or that there was one little oversight in his plan. Perhaps his plan could be improved. And that's exactly what happened. God had said, if you take from this tree, you will surely die. And as soon as they did, man surely died. Any of y'all ever read the next few chapters of Genesis? Really quickly, let's just talk about what happens in chapter four. So we're just a couple chapters away from perfect glory, right? Everything was perfect. Well, then our first people, right, Adam and Eve, they have a lovely couple of kids. Um, They have a little bundle of joy named Cain, and they have this little angel named Abel. Cain, the bundle of joy, gets mad at God, he gets jealous of his brother, and he kills him. (laughs) Meant to multiply, man is dividing, and we're only in the fourth chapter of the Bible. The train is already off the tracks, and if we keep reading, we see that sin and destruction and death continues to multiply all throughout the book of Genesis. You see sort of these ages in the Bible that are really, really old, and they start to get shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. And we see the work of sin sort of taking its sort of course, this work of sin sort of multiplying across people and throughout systems in the world. And the train is off the tracks. But God wouldn't let it crash. There's an old poem that reads, O loving wisdom of our God, when all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. Paul teaches that God has sent a second Adam to reverse the things that the first Adam has done. Paul's the only New Testament writer who uses this image, but he uses it in two places, in 1 Corinthians 15 and in Romans chapter 5. So if you would look with me in Romans uh, chapter 5, where Paul is unpacking uh, this metaphor of Jesus as a, as a second Adam, as in one who has come, through Adam has come death, and through Jesus has come righteousness. Romans 5 is, is, is a beautiful passage of Scripture. It's one that y- if you've grown up in church, you've heard, whether you're aware that you've heard it or not. If you've ever heard something like, uh, when you were at your lowest point, God died for you, like we can say that because the Bible says that in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, at the beginning of it, verse 1, since we have justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's beautiful exposition of the gospel as it applies to individuals in, in Romans chapter 5. But in verse 12, Paul is speaking about how the gospel applies to sort of all of humanity. Verse 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so through one man came sin, and when sin came with it, what else came? Death, all the stuff that that sin brings with it everywhere it goes, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, right? All men, because all sinned. So the death that was initiated in Adam has spread to all of us. Why? Because we've all sinned. We're all in Adam. We're all just people. Like, one of my favorite things that people say that you can use to relate to the gospel without even really trying is, I'm only human, right? I'm only human. Yeah, I'm only, and being only human means I I sin. I'm a sinner. We get bitter. We get mad. We get anxious. We get frustrated. We lust. We crave. We do all kinds of things that maybe we should do, maybe we shouldn't do, or it's the right thing. We do the wrong way. We're just such a mixed bag of goods because, after all, we are only human. In verse 14, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. Death reigned 
from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like Adam, who is a type of the one who was to come. Death reigned over everybody, even those who didn't do what Adam did or weren't necessarily just like Adam. Death reigned from Adam to Moses. But the gift in verse 15, the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ abounded for many. One man sins, and in his sin introduces death. One man comes and does the opposite. He does exactly what he's called to do. He lives with perfect righteousness. He does not usurp the rule of God. He himself is God who's come to show us perfect righteousness. And in this one man, where in one man came death, now in one man has come life. For if many have died through one man's trespass, much more is the grace of God who brings righteousness through another man. That one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one, tres one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. One person brought condemnation, the other brought justification. That Adam has invited sin into the world, but God has invited righteousness into the world in the person of Jesus Christ. That Adam has messed up, the train derailed, but a second Adam has come to make right what the first Adam has messed up. That the will of the Lord, as Isaiah prophesies in Isaiah 53, the will of the Lord would prosper in his hand. Paul begins chapter 6. Look with me there with a question. A rhetorical question. He mines the depths, which we don't have time to mine, but we can introduce this morning, of Romans 5, where he's talking about Jesus being a, a second Adam. What shall we say then? Right? It say, why, why does this matter? Right? So what? And that is sort of a lead-in for the rest of our sermon. What shall we say then? So in Adam all died, now in Jesus all are made righteous. Uh, what now? So what? Why does that matter? Why does it matter that Jesus, a second Adam, came to reverse the curse of the first Adam? Why does it matter that the will of the Lord would prosper in his hand? Verse 6, look with me. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Let me read that again, right? We know that our old self was crucified with him. Anyone remember their old self? Yeah. I don't think enough of us remember our old self. I think some of us have been saved so long that when the old self comes back around, we don't even recognize him. I think so many of us have been saved so long, we just write off sin in our life as a reality that is there instead of a part of the old self that Jesus has crucified. I don't think we realize that though we'll never be perfect, we can see victory over sin in our lives. God doesn't intend us to wallow in self-pity all the time. God doesn't intend for us to wallow in lust all the time. God doesn't intend for us to be enslaved to bitterness all the time. One of the great problems of the theological tribe I'm a part of is that sometimes we can see sin and just be like, well, that's just how it is. That's just how it's going to be. We better not worry about it. 
We gotta do war with it. That Jesus has crucified that sin in ours. And that we can see victory over that old self because Jesus has conquered that old self. I think some of us have been saved so long, we don't know what that old self looks like. And so when he comes back into our lives, we don't realize that's the old self, that's the body of flesh, and I have to crucify it because Jesus has crucified him for me and given me the spirit and empowered me through him to crucify the sin that's in me. For one who has died has been set free from sin. We've died to ourselves. We're free from sin. Verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Verse 11 is so important. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. You must consider yourselves dead to sin. You must consider yourselves dead to the last Adam and alive to the first Adam. You need to recapture God's plan for your life, recapture God's plan for creation. You need to see who Jesus is because in Jesus you can learn how to live. In Jesus you can learn how to fight sin. And in Jesus you can embrace the life that God has for you. Verses 12 through the rest of, uh, 12 to 14, two verses. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. You're not under Adam, you're under Christ. You're not under death, you're under life. You're not under law, you're under grace. So what? So who is, here's the question. Who do I present myself to on a Monday morning, a Tuesday afternoon, and a Friday night? Who do I present myself to? Who do I present my mind, my body, and my heart to on a normal, everyday circumstance? One who's died has been set free from sin. We're not in Adam, we're in Christ. You also must consider yourselves dead to sin, verse 11. Let not therefore, so because of all those things, let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Don't let sin reign over you. It's gonna try. Like that snake metaphor I used earlier, it's gonna try to creep back up. It's gonna try to make you apathetic. It's gonna try to lull you to sleep. It's gonna try to harden your heart. It's gonna try to distract you. It's gonna try all these things. But you can look at it and say, okay, I've fallen once, but I don't have to fall again because you're dead. (laughs) Because you're dead. And you don't hold the chains that bind me anymore because there is one who's stronger and his name is Jesus. I love the simplicity of this. We're not in Adam, we're in Christ. Now what? Present yourself to Christ. Now what? Present yourself to Christ. Go share the gospel every single day? Not necessarily. Try harder? Not necessarily. Never miss a day the church's doors are open? Not necessarily. Never mess up once? Not necessarily. Some of those things will come, some of them won't. But here's the heart of the matter. Present yourself to God. Present yourself to Christ. What are we to do now that we're in Christ? Present ourselves to God as instruments of righteousness. Don't worry just about trying harder and doing more. Don't worry about the specific role or title you have in the church because trust me, there are many days where I really don't want the role and title that I've got. 
And don't worry about being a catalytic leader. Don't worry about people knowing your name. Don't worry about everything being, uh, you know, a certain type of way. Don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. Just present yourself to God tomorrow morning. Because God, here's, this is the beautiful truth. In Genesis 1, the life of God just multiplied throughout creation. Because God in Christ is going to multiply his life through us anew. St. Augustine once said, a Christian Christ's church is a mind through which Christ thinks, a heart through which Christ loves, a voice through which Christ speaks, and a hand through which Christ helps. The beautiful truth as we seek to make disciples, as we seek to plant churches in all these kind of things, is that quite literally, we are not doing the work. Quite literally, the role of a Christian is to be a conduit for divine love to affect and flow through in the everyday stuff of life that we see in Genesis 1. I think of that famous John 15 passage, right? If you've never read John 15, or if you haven't meditated on it this afternoon, tonight, tomorrow morning, would be a great time to do so in light of this passage. I think verse five, I am the vine, you're the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, it's he that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing, right? Church, I wanna make the case that God is still gonna fill the earth with the goodness of his creation and the knowledge of his glory, and in Christ, we are his agents that bring that to pass. The plan of God will prosper in the hands of the Son, and we play a role in the plan of the Son. We're useless without God, but with Him, with Him we'll be used in ways we never dared dream. I want to make a case this morning that multiplication isn't really a church growth strategy. It's not really a missions strategy. It's not really a new idea that we've recaptured in the modern church. I want to argue that multiplication is woven into the fabric of creation. I want to argue that multiplication is what happens when the creation submits to the creator. I want to argue that multiplication is what happens when we submit ourselves to God and the life of God flows through us. I said I wanted to move the conversation about new churches and new believers from the boardroom to the classroom. I wanted everyday people to know that the everyday work you do as stay-at-home moms, as teachers, as doctors, as therapists, as preachers, as electricians, as whatever it is that you do, all of these things, they matter. They matter. Martin Luther said the Christian shoemaker doesn't do his job by putting crosses on all of the shoes. He does his job by making really good shoes. I wanna make the case today that when we think about multiplication, we need a little bit of a paradigm shift from the extravagant and the bigger and the better to the real stuff of everyday life, of God using my little and bringing much from it. I wanna argue that the Christians I aspire to be like are those who faithfully follow Jesus for a lifetime with no recognition. So how does this relate to church planting and, and why would we preach this sermon today? Well, one, we haven't defined what we mean by multiply. So I think multiplication is what happens when the life of God flows through God's creatures. Two, I think churches are born when churches simply are what they're called to be and do what they're called to do. I think the life of God flowing through churches is missions, and I think we need to think more about Christians being Christians and creating Christians than we do about proliferating religious companies. And what I mean by that is this. 
we all have sort of an animating vision of how our lives should be and how different things in our life should be. So for instance, if you are, um, this is a complete conjecture and it, it's taking assumptions and I, not everyone has this vision. But let's say you're a single guy um, and you have this animating vision of what your life should be like, right? So you've got this picture of like a wife that you love, this beautiful woman that you love, two kids who are, you know, McDonald's All-Americans, mine will most likely be McDonald's All-American basketball players. You have these kind of McDonald's All-American basketball players. Um, you make enough money to have, you know, everything you want and everything you need and most of what you want. And, um, you know, th things are okay. You're saving enough money to retire. You got this vision for your life out there. You wouldn't sit down and say that. You wouldn't spell that out. But that's just sort of this picture in your head and, and you're living towards that picture, right? You get the degree because you're living towards that picture. You talk to the girl. You slide in the DMs. You do, the, you, know, you, know, you, you do these things because you're living towards that picture and whatever it's going to take to get there. And so what happens then is you, you're not articulating any of this. This is all happening at the heart level. And what happens then is something happens that, that keeps you from getting to that picture. And that something becomes the enemy. Something happens that keeps you from the job that's going to get you where you need to be. Something happens that keeps you from the relationship that's going to get you where you need to be. Something happens that, that to your kid, something goes wrong, and you can't pinpoint the place of frustration, but what has happened is that the animating vision you have, this picture of the good life that's out there that's pulling you, because if you've been around here long enough, you've heard me say this, you're not really pushed by what you believe. We say we are, but we're not. We're pushed a little bit by what we believe, but we're pulled by what we want. We're pulled by what we want. And so the Christian life isn't just fixing what I believe. That's what most of evangelicalism does. But the Christian life is fixing what I believe so that I can change what I want. And so what happens then is there's this animating vision that we're living towards. And when something gets in the way of that animating vision, if we can articulate it or not, we get really frustrated because it's keeping us from where we think we should be. So my question for us is that what's that animating vision of the church? What's that animating vision of church growth? Most of us, we would not be able to articulate it. I don't know what the church is supposed to look like when it grows. I guess more people in the doors. I guess more staff, whatever that means, how we've co-opted that word from corporate America too. I guess more people reading Mason's stuff. I guess, I guess better facilities. I, I guess more franchises, right? Why do we think this way? Because the void in our mind has been filled was sort of business thinking. There's a famous truism that's been passed down to us. No one really knows exactly who said it first, but it goes like this. In the first century in Palestine, Christianity was a community of believers. Then Christianity moved to Greece and became a philosophy. Then it moved to Rome and became an institution. Then it moved to Europe and became a culture. And then it moved to America and became a business. It moved to America and became a business. I'm not going to give a scathing critique of that. I've done that before. But where I want to land the plane this morning is that the growth that is our animating vision, stick with me, that what I want us to see out in the distance isn't just a whole lot of people in the Capitol Theater, isn't just a whole lot of people in this room. What I want us to see out there in the distance is something more important. I want us to see something out there that looks more like Genesis 1 than Walmart. So for a second, worship team, you guys can go ahead and, and lead us to the table, and we'll follow you in just a moment. I want us to sort of pick up the paintbrush of our heart for just a moment and, and paint some things that can maybe be a vision that we live towards together, can reorient the things that we want. 
But first, I want to talk about Christians living out their Christianity. Christians living out their Christianity in the everyday stuff of life. Parents loving their kids and raising them to love God and love others. Parents, have, have you raised kids? Are they Christians? Congrats, you're a catalytic disciple maker. <laughs> Congrats, you've done incredible work. Businessmen dealing ethically with one another, trusting their word in everything that they do. Teachers being patient with your difficult students. Siblings being patient with your difficult siblings. Molly never had to worry about that, but some of you, some of you might. Neighbors loving their neighbors, their fun neighbors and their really annoying neighbors. Groups of people then, if Christians are learning how to live out their Christianity, how to practice these virtues, groups of people then learning how to do this together. Learning how to live through life together through the ups and the downs and the heartbreak and the confusion and the disappointment and the depression and the anxiety and everything in between. Uh, so I'm coaching basketball this year. Uh, I love basketball and I have to have some like one foot outside of the religious world to keep my sanity. And um, I'm coaching at Polka High, uh, Go Dots. We're looking to you know, play in Charleston this year, state title. We're somewhat of a dynasty. Um, but I'm an assistant, you know, not the head coach. Our head coach of 100 years is back coaching. And we were having some workouts, um, voluntary workouts, right? And this is one kid, man, and, and he was struggling. And he wasn't playing well, and he, he, just, he was like the cog in the wheel that kept the whole thing from really running the way we wanted to. And some of the older kids were getting really frustrated with him. And they were like, you could tell, just rolling their eyes. And, oh, my gosh, you know, stuff like that. And um, coach, <laughs> coach is sitting back in his chair with his arms over his belly. He doesn't listen to podcasts. He won't hear me. Sitting with his arms over his belly looking and says, what y'all really need to be doing is encouraging each other. Because from where I'm sitting, ain't none of y'all look very good. And God kind of taught me something in that moment. Imagine God kind of watching us. It's not a good metaphor, but let's go with it for a second. And when we see our brother doing something he shouldn't be doing, or like, oh my gosh, he's doing this again. Oh my gosh, looking down on our brother who might not be as strong as we think we are. And God's like, listen, from where I'm sitting, ain't none of y'all that impressive. So what you need to be doing is focusing on building each other up. So what you need to be doing is focusing on loving each other. So what you need to be doing is focusing on doing what I've called you to do. And then maybe when you do that and you pick the other brother up, maybe this team, this thing can be what we want it to be. I'm talking about people learning how to get over their differences, people learning how to be friends, people sitting down at a table and sharing meals together, new communities forged, new ties happening. I'm talking about people in, coming in, into your life and you meeting them and loving them and being intentional with them and serving them and being present with integrity in their lives and being consistent with them. I'm talking about sharing the gospel. I'm talking about being present. I'm talking about learning how to be this together. 
That's what I want us to live towards. I want us to look out into the future of Resurrection Church, of Risen City Church, and all of our other parishes. And I don't want us to see an empire that stretches from sea to shining sea. I want us to see ordinary people from every age and every strata of life doing Christian things in the everyday stuff of life and looking like Genesis 1, letting the life of God flow through them and that multiplying across our towns, across our cities, and across our states. Specifically in Risen City, I, I don't want us to have a vision that, oh, by week one, we got to have all these people here. No, I want it just to be people meeting people. For Res, we want that room to be filled. We're going to keep trusting the ordinary means of grace. Our happiness and joy isn't on how many people sit here, how well the machine runs. It's on how much we're growing in Christ. It's the life of God. Us experience that life and letting that life flow through us. So what does it look like for our growth to look more like Genesis 1 than Walmart? I don't know. But I think some of those things we need to put out there as that picture of the good life that we're living towards. A church that loves, a church that forgives, a church that reconciles, a church that serves, a church that takes the stuff of God where it's meant to be and it's in the everyday stuff of life, a church that's multiplying across darkness, a church that's seeing people who are far from God come to life in Christ, a church of people who wake up in the mornings and say, God, I present myself to you. We're gonna take the supper together. Um, I just particularly love the mornings where we get to take the Lord's Supper. Uh, The table is for Christians. Um, If you're not a believer, we're glad that you're here, but we ask that you um, not uh, approach the table. Or perhaps if you're living in this repentant way where you're saying, I'm not offering myself to God, and I'm like consistently not doing that. You know, I'm, I'm consistently doing it. Then I think this morning perhaps you can take a moment um, for reflection. And as I, as I wind to a close, I'm reading a book right now. I wanted to read more of it, but um, I'm not finished yet. By a Mennonite, uh, an Anabaptist theologian, uh, Harvard PhD named Dr. Alan Kreider, and uh, uh, it's called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. And he really draws heavily on a lot of different sources to talk about. We hear the story of in the first four centuries, the church is growing all over the world. But how did it happen? What did it look like? And you know, from the fathers, the origins to the Tertullians and different guys from the second, third, fourth century, we don't have any clear mission strategy. We don't have any clear growth model. But you know what they wrote a whole lot about that we don't write a whole lot about today? And in this book, he analyzes these documents. They wrote about the Christian virtues. And the first virtue that they wrote about, or most frequently of, is patience. They wrote about patience. We don't like patience in our day. We like pop-up churches. It's our first service, we got 10,000 people. We don't like patience. We like quick. And as I'm reading this book, the Lord's teaching me to be patient. Let's be patient. Let's enjoy the life of God and let's live the life of God. I'm gonna pray for us. Then after I pray, you can go and partake of the Lord's Supper. Take it at the table, take it at your seat, wherever you feel comfortable. Then come back and we'll sing together and we'll be dismissed and have a few announcements. So let's pray.
Father, um, in some ways, I'm guilty of the same sin of Adam and Eve. And that sin is thinking I know better than you how to shepherd and steward and lead your people. And we've all kind of committed that sin, that I know better than you how to make churches grow. I know better than you how to lead my family. I know better than you how to work at my job. I know better than you how to do all these things. And Lord, we confess that to you this morning. God, give us patience this morning. We're rushing to work on a whole lot of stuff. I'm rushing to figure out a million questions, and we feel that the weight of the world is on as every turn. But Lord, as we seek to plant Risen City, as we seek to see Resurrection Church grow and expand and see your kingdom come, Lord, give us patience. Move the scorecard from Walmart to Genesis 1, where your life is being lived through your creation and you're naturally multiplying. Help us see that every patient we see, every customer we interact with, every kid we teach is someone who's made in your image. Someone who's made to receive your love and give your love. Someone who's made to know you. And help us honor them in that way. Make us patient with our brothers and sisters. Make us charitable. And like the early church, make us the kind of people who don't come to the table with the best ideas, but come to the table with the best God. We love you, Lord, and it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.